we can't all be Mark Marin. <laughs> we don't have garages. Yeah. Well, I think that's really what separates us. That that's the only thing that separates us from being WTF with Mark Marin. That's the one thing. Yeah. Okay, cool. So many so many so many damn books. Hello. Hello to you. Hello. Uh and welcome all uh, to all of you playing at home. This is I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. Uh, and we have Caitlin Greenidge in the damn library with us today, joining us for this episode of So Many Damn Books. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, thanks Hi. for having me. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Um, Caitlin, you are from Boston. Yep, that's Woo! right. And your work has appeared all over the place. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, L, Lenny Letter, The Believer, Guernica. Uh, you got your MFA from Hunter College right here in New York. Yeah, right here in New York City. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, in the midst of the tournament of books, yeah, um, your your book. Uh, well, when this comes out, your book will have contended last week, so we can't actually know what happened. Okay, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we, instead of talking about that stuff, I I want to tell you about the drink that uh, we're drinking here. Ah, uh, yes, inspired by "We Love You," Charlie Freeman. Yeah. This drink that I made for y'all is uh, called the uh, um, bananas aren't actually good for chimpanzees, um, <laughs> uh, which is something that I learned today while I was doing research on, <laughs> on how to make the drink. Um, and it's uh, it's a rum-based drink, dark dark rum. Um, and so if you uh, if you've been buying alcohol along with me uh, as you <laughs> as I've been making cocktails, the last drink for Francine Pros had two weeks uh, ago. Two weeks ago, yeah, had a uh, bowls uh, banana rum, mm. uh, and so I put that in this one too. Because so when guys, else are, are you gonna, gonna use bowls banana rum? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. not not often. <laughs> but it, so this is dark rum, and then bowls banana rum, and a little bit of demerara, uh, simple syrup, and lime juice shaken up, and then poured over a big ice cube. Very nice. Yeah, um, I'm really happy with this, and I think if you make it at home. You'd be happy You'll with it too. You'll use more of that bowls. Yeah. <laughs> so should we talk about books now? Yeah, I think we yeah. should. That's um, what we do on this podcast. Uh, Christopher, let's start with you. what have you picked up lately? Oh yeah, we should do what'd you buy. I just purchased um maybe because i'm working on my own uh <laughs> secret life of the american musical uh by jack vertel out from uh fsg oh cool yeah um and i am very curious about the secret life of the american mu- musical if it is anything like the secret life of the american teenager <laughs> i am in for a pulpy there's probably a fair amount of soap overlap. opera <laughs> ride <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, Caitlin, do you want to talk about something you picked up recently? Uh, yeah, I just bought um, this book called This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed about uh, organ- organizers during the civil rights movement mm-hmm. um, using the little known story of people using guns during the civil rights movement, um, huh. particularly to protect nonviolent protesters when they went to certain towns in the South. Whoa. Cool. Yeah. That's some serious stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Drew? 
I subscribe on and off to this um, one of those book boxes where they send you something every month. Um, Muse Monthly, mm. where they send you a book and tea pairing. Okay. Um, and this most recent one uh, was Jamie Attenberg's new novel, All Grown Up, mm-hmm. uh, which came with what appears to be like an exclusive blend that some New Orleans tea shop did for Jamie. That's like a bourbon, vanilla, non-caffeinated tea. Um, it showed up just today, so I haven't even had a chance to try it yet. That makes sense because the main character is a drinker. Apparently yeah. just drinks bourbon the entire novel. Yeah. Which, so, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it's about me. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Uh, I don't no, know. you're drinking rum right yeah. now. It's perfect. Yeah, it's the same. Well, that sounds... We all did some good book buying. I'm really proud of all three of us. (laughs) Let's uh, let's move to your uh, terrific debut novel. We love you, Charlie Freeman. Oh, oh, thanks. It has been shortlisted for many awards and and getting a lot lot of buzz, and it's a wonderful book. Do you want to tell... The listeners what it's about sure it's a book about a black family from boston in the early 1990s and they moved to a nearly all-white town in the berkshires and they moved there to teach sign language to a chimpanzee who's the charlie freeman of the title and then parts of the book go back to the 1920s to explain why this research institution is hiring this black family to in the 90s to do this um, so it expands across time periods and then a little bit of it takes place in the Belgian Congo in the 1920s and in the Berkshires in the 1920s and then the early 90s. Yeah. Let's talk about that, that, the, the main, um, storyline, the, the, the 90s storyline. There's a lot of nostalgia for the 90s that's, right yes, now. Yes, that's I very certainly true. feel that. I think just culturally, people who were growing up in the 80s and the 90s are now like they're we're adults and we're, mm-hmm. in, we're in charge of the internet really is what it is yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's um, very true but so i'm curious to know like what was it like going back in time like did were you doing it out of nostalgia or were you setting it there for more plotty reasons um there are a couple different reasons part of it was the plot so the plot requires that um this the the protagonist this teenage girl charlotte who doesn't want to be a part of this experiment Um, doesn't find out why her family is being asked to do this experiment for probably like a good first court, like half of the novel, I guess. Um, So if it took place today, a lot of her questions would just be solved with like a Google search very Mm -hmm. easily. So like that was a big reason to set it pre-internet. And then part of me was very calculating in that like, I started this book in 2008. So I was like, you know, the way nostalgia trains go, like by the time this book comes out, there'll be the nineties nostalgia train will have hit (laughs) hard. Um, And uh, I think we're just kind of, we're coming to the end of that now. I think now we're like on the early two thousands nostalgia train and you have to kind of recalibrate stuff, but Uh, mostly it was the, the plot stuff um, to make it there. That makes sense. Oh, there's so many terrible things that people have done in the name of science. Um, was did did this pop out to you uh, for any particular reason, or 
was it the family from Boston? I know that you have that connection there. Well, I was a history major as an undergrad, and I did a lot of stuff around um, historiography, which was like the history of history, which is super nerdy, but also really, <laughs> really interesting in how people's ideas about the past get formed and how our stories about the past get formed. So um, I'd taken a course on scientific history about how people have like basically told the story of science and how science what we say about science shifts from period to period. And so um, a lot of that, like a detour in that class was kind of talking about um, these experiments that people try to do on other populations often. It's kind of the the basis for a lot of our huge leaps forward in scientific discovery in the last like 60 to 70 years have almost all been built on the backs of like really terrible secret experiments being done on like very isolated or marginalized populations. So that to me is really interesting. And, um, and I think, I think that it, I think talking about that is more complicated than just saying like, um, you know, I mean, I think saying obviously it's terrible, but I think talking about that is very complicated about what, what that happens and how that happens and how people mostly I was more interested in writing a book where everybody thinks that they are doing the best that they can possibly do, um, but making really terrible choices while being really convinced that they're doing really, really kind of good or, or the right thing or the good thing. I think my favorite genre of anything is like the messy family drama mm-hmm. and the Thanksgiving dinner scene that you write that comes two thirds of the way through the book. Mm-hmm. Is just like it's up there with Tracy Letts' August Osage County. Oh for, wow, like, thank you. Explosive <laughs> shit. It means happening. a lot. I love that place. Um, thank you. And I'm I'm curious to know what it took to write that because it it just feels very uncomfortable. And I'm wondering if it felt uncomfortable while you were writing it. Yeah, it probably took like a year plus to write that scene because it was really uncomfortable to write it and wow. um, to re to figure out what everybody's position was going to be in that scene took a long time and and then getting really kind of like demented and sad ideas and then just feeling like all right I guess it's going in the book even though it's really <laughs> depressing and sad but um so it took a long time to just like get the courage to put it on the page but I too really like. Um, I like family dramas and what I I think what I like about them is that there are, it's a, it's a way to talk about um, how there can be multiple perspectives on a single event um, in a way that makes it really clear to like a reader or an audience because it's a family. um, You can trace how those perspectives are influenced by people's upbringing or people's position in the scene or people's whatever really much more easily than you can if they're not um, related. Um, So I, I knew, I think, I think I just kind of like took it for granted that there would be some sort of big explosive like family scene because I like those a lot in books um, and uh, and TV and stuff like that. So. Well, I mean, and you've set it, you set it up so perfectly, even from the very first car ride that there's a lot going on below below the surface and this is not a family where things get talked about Mm -hmm. this isn't like a touchy-feely like everyone's gonna find out all of the truth all the time the literal thing of of the kids like communicating in sign language Mm -hmm. um yeah i thought back to like car rides with my sister and the the non-verbal cues that we had with each other but that is it's literally language happening under the surface Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's the secret language on another level i mean sisterhood is an interesting um 
thing that you've, you're touching on. And I don't think, of, of course, that you need a sister to be able to write sisterhood well. But was that based on um, anything close to your oh, uh, personal experience? Yeah, I have two older sisters okay. who I'm pretty close to. Um, um, they're both writers as well. And so um, I was thinking a lot about the way that families kind of make up their own language um, when they're... I mean, I think that's just kind of like a nature of being in a family. That's part of like the the um, definition of it is that you, over the years, you start to um, just have your own shorthand for how to refer to things. And then I think when I was, at one point when I was writing this, I read some uh, internet study. I don't know if it's true or not. I think like on like some psychology website or something that was like, if a family suffers a major trauma and if there is a sister in the family, they're like 10 times more likely to recover emotionally because women for both like biological and social reasons are conditioned to do the emotional labor necessary to like have that recovery. But if Mm. a trauma occurs in a family where it's all brothers that like it it all goes out the window, like it's it's probably not going to recover as quickly. Um, And so that was really interesting to me when I was writing this. And then I was like, well, you know, I don't, you know, as someone who is not a gender essentialist, that whole theory is like very problematic to me. So I wanted to write about like a, a sister duo who experiences a trauma that can't really come back from it totally um, all the way. Hmm. Hmm. I, I want to talk about the Charlie Freeman of it all, um, which Anytime that there's like an animal in a novel or, or I don't know, I kind of feel like it's special effects almost. It's like, you know, getting the, getting the CGI monkey in there, um, <laughs> working with that. Um, but, you know, working with an animal and, and, and describing him and then all the ways that humans project emotion onto animals. I mean, there's so many ways that it can go wrong and go so right as well. Um, you know, juggling, working with a chimpanzee. What was that? What was that like? Uh, well, I hate animals for the most part. Um, my agent hates it when I say that because she loves animals and she gets very offended. But um, I you say wearing a yeah, bison sweater. Y- I like them on fashion, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But um, I, I don't. I like. I'm not. I don't watch like animal videos on the internet. I'm not like one of those people who's like, I gotta see pictures of dog. Like that's not my thing. Um, so I and we're we're in like a cultural moment right now where like people use that as like measure of like whether or not you're like a human or not is like, can you respond to this puppy picture? <laughs> and so I think that's really I that's really as somebody who does not respond to the puppy picture, I think that's really interesting. And um I I also thought was thinking about all those things about how people really project a lot of their own selves onto animals and particularly um i think we're in a moment right now where a lot of a a lot of litmus tests happen around animals um which is really strange because they 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 are not human they are completely an other being from us um and you know and like if i was to like animals i think that's probably what i would like about them is that they're so otherly not human mm-hmm. but um but i think humans just have this tendency or i guess humans in like a certain type of culture have a tendency to to just kind of put all of their expectations onto certain animals so it took a while to write the animal parts because i'm not like naturally curious about them and so that was kind of like a little intellectual challenge to set up for myself is like, how do you write about something that you're not 
like naturally drawn to. Um, and so it took a while to figure out how, how Charlie was going to be a character in the book. Um, but I knew that what, like the very first thing they ever wrote of the book was from the point of view of a, of a child, a girl talking about this monkey sibling and, and, and about how much she just really resented him and like really (laughs) disliked him and how he was taking all this attention away from her. So I knew that that was like one of the ways in, but that can only last so long in a book. You can't read like 300 pages of that. I think (laughs) one note very fast. So I had to figure out who, what each of the characters were going to specifically be feeling about this character, Charlie in their, in their lives. Something that you mentioned earlier, the the What'd You Buy book that you mentioned, um, makes me think of the other family that we get to see briefly in the present tense action of the novel, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Marie was such a fun character. Um, she's the mother of uh, Charlotte's one friend, right. basically. She's, she's like a total hippie. Yeah. Like civil disobedience and... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's a section where like she's talking about it um and i it like i took photos of the pages because i was just like this is so and I, I you know i read this book um i guess two weeks ago and i've found that everything i have read since january i can't not read it with a political eye mm-hmm. and like i put the book down and made my five phone calls to my congress people at that mm-hmm. point and then i was like what else what else can i be doing uh <laughs> But I'm I'm curious about like the activism that is sort of it's hidden in this novel until all of a sudden it's very much not. Mm-hmm. She's kind of like she's a she's performing political consciousness for um, for Charlotte and her friend Adia for or, or I guess Marie's daughter Idea. Like she for me she's like a she is a person who as much as her Paul the the performance is as important to her as the politics. So it's important to her that she has an audience to understand how politically conscious she is kind of at all times and all moments. Um, and so uh, she's, I, you know, I, um, I went like growing up, I kind of went back and forth between feeling like really anxious about like how much activism are you actually doing? Like um, I, my family is not particularly, I mean, I guess, you know, according to today's standards, they're like probably like Marxist or whatever, but they're not particularly like left left wing in any kind of sense. But they, uh, you know, it's a long tradition of uh, community activism in my family. And you go on marches and you sign petitions and you call your congressman. And those are the things that you're supposed to do as a citizen. Um, And if you're not doing it, you are um, you're failing as like part of the contract of being in this country. So um, growing up, there was like a lot of uh, like guilt over like, how much am I actually doing of these things? And then on top of it, um, I was in, when I was in high school, I guess in like the first or no, probably the second go around of like Afrocentrism. I think we're like in the third go around now, but like (laughs) in like 93, 94, 95, um, you know, there's like this outgrowth of a lot of talk around Afrocentric politics and Afrocentric aesthetic and kind of all these movies and books coming out and really exciting. But um, also as a like a teenager at that time, feeling like a disconnect because that cultural kind of renaissance of of stuff coming up was still like a very narrow 
um, definition of activism, a really narrow definition of blackness, a really narrow definition of of all those things that didn't necessarily seem to encompass or or actively like denigrated the parts of my life and the things that I particularly was interested in. I think we're in a really interesting moment right now where like we're in the third wave of that Afrocentrism that's attempted to correct itself and to include um, like as much and as many kind of varied experiences as possible, which is really kind of interesting to see. Um, so this was more uh, a, Marie is kind of of that old school version where she is uh, deeply and loudly committed to a really particular idea of blackness and of Africa and she's unable and and um, unwilling to kind of allow any other complications into that idea um, or any other ways of expression into that idea. Um, and so she and she's able to really be so rigid and to be so um, dogmatic and to be such an ideologue because she lives in this all white town and she doesn't have any she doesn't have to deal with any other actual black people to to remind her of strife or community strife or all those sorts of things that make a vibrant and really kind of strong actual activist community. Um, I don't know if you guys know this book that came out like, mm, I think it came out in the end of November or December. It's called Conflict is Not Abuse by this writer, Sarah Schulman, who's a really great um, writer and stuff. And so I I think about that book a lot because that book is all about how it's, I mean, it's in the title, Conflict is Not Abuse, right. but um, that activist communities actually grow stronger when we have these um, internal battles and when we're able to to compromise around these internal battles to get to like a larger point. Um, and I think we're at a really interesting moment right now where uh, at least like for the past two years, um, at least on the left, these battles have like caused people to, to really, really um, kind of embrace the idea of splintering as much as possible and excluding and shunning people as much as possible. And we're in a moment now where we can't afford to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. we have to kind of talk about these strategies of how do we actually um, work with people who ostensibly share our same aims but might be going about it slightly differently or might be living slightly differently than um, we would like rigidly and purely wish them to do. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's intriguing to me something that you were you were saying before um, that you know that you kind of had that first scene of a of a child ta- um, like resenting an uh, a, a, a chimpanzee a sibling and then uh, th- and then that you didn't write, like writing animals but it, that you did include this other like activism part of your family it just seems like um, there was a lot of I don't know I guess con- like internal conflict of yourself like it's uh, like the book was making itself be written against your will in some in some way like well was, I is like, that true <laughs> n- um not really against will i mean i like the for me a, something is interesting to write about it if i don't want to write about it or if it seems like it's something that's going to be really difficult to write about particularly for fiction i think for nonfiction it's a little bit different but for fiction if it's something that seems like it's going to be really scary or something that just sounds really gross or like that's going to gross out other people or all those <laughs> things um, or upset other people, then those are usually the things that I want to write about in fiction or, or um, just for myself. And those are the things I'm usually drawn to reading about in fiction too. Um, so 
this book was kind of just like an exercise because it's my first novel. So it was like an exercise and like, what are all the things that um, are really scary to say or that I've experienced or like said out loud and have been like rejected for or, like people have said that's horrible. You can't say that out loud or all those sorts of things just went into this book. Um, hmm. So, you know, I don't know what the experience is as a reader. Of <laughs> um, it's probably the book's flaw, but um, but that was the the idea of, of putting those things in. Wow. Yeah. Let's let's take a break and refill our drinks for a second. As we switch uh, gears from the book that Caitlin wrote to the book that Caitlin brought, let's uh, talk the tournament. Yeah, last week was um, exhausting. Yes, it was. It was. Uh, we finished the opening round and had the entirety of the semifinals. Yeah, uh, you know, I I always forget that this is following some sort of sports structure uh, yeah. in in the course of this, but that we're in like semifinals and fi- but yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, um, I guess we had all of the quarterfinals, quarterfinals, semifinals, finals, something like that. Sports, I don't know. Um, and and you guys already know what happens with what happened with version control, um, and and whether or not it it fights another day or if it's gone. I don't think it will zombie. No, and uh, I imagine that if somehow it does topple the underground railroad, that book's gonna pop right back up like one of those bouncy, one of those bouncy clown things that you box. Bouncy clown. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know. Um, bouncy clown is a great name for a band. Yes, agreed. I mean, let's talk zombies for a second. I the. If all the birds in the sky and the vegetarian are they strong books when they come back really yeah i mean i don't see them be, being strong enough to 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 come back and win against either um underground railroad or home going um if version control did do the impossible maybe yeah um but i just i don't know why but neither of those books caused real strong reactions for me I mean, I loved all the birds, but I'm not, I don't know. There's a gravitas gap, I, I think. Get, I mean, strong reactions, like tournament-wise. I mean, I loved all the birds, too. But, yeah, yeah. But I didn't see it as having, I mean, it's it's amazing that it's gotten, that it went as far as it did and that it um that it has this zombie contention. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, this is something where, like, the sports metaphors start to fall apart, but the vegetarian feels untested. Like, it went out in the first round, um... And so there hasn't been the conversation around it. We haven't been talking about it. And so it it has a little bit of that uh, mysterious thing about it where if it comes back, who knows what it'll do. Mm. I love all of the people that talk to us in, in the comments on the Tournament of Books. And uh, I hope we can continue having our deep conversations. And if if... You want to continue some of these conversations. Um, we are, of course, always available to talk about books. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I find that the conversations, like the conversations about the conversations that happen in Gchat or Twitter or over email, 
those can be just as fun. Totally. So thanks everybody for uh, making this such a special time for us. We hope that we're helping with you too. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there'll and we be have some more stuff coming down. It's coming down. Yeah. We'll uh, be back on Saturday with our final Facebook live recap thingy. And we're also going to have um, Nosley and maybe some other folks join us on, on the show. Yeah. And that episode will be out uh, in two weeks. Um, but what you should really prepare for is more awesome Caitlin Greenidge. Her book might have gone down already, but her writing is incredible. And it's great that she won that Whiting Award. Yeah, so uh, come on back. Come on back. Come on back. Are you ready? To, you want to pivot? Well, I was just, I'm stealing your thing a little bit. You can steal anything um, you want. Speaking of of things that are uh, maybe like a little uncomfortable to say out loud, I didn't realize what the title of Sarah Waters is tipping the velvet meant. Oh yeah, until like because they don't say it until almost the end of the book, and then I was like, oh, that's yeah. so funny. Oh my, <laughs> yeah. It's... I was talking to my friend Tennessee. was like, I'm reading this book, tipping the velvet. He's like, that's nasty. <laughs> like, you, your mind immediately went there. <laughs> that's. So, I mean, like, I knew it was going to be somewhat about a dance dance halls, and mm-hmm. like, so I kind of thought tipping the velvet to be like a. You know, oh, I definitely, yeah, I thought it was a hat or, thing. Or, mm. or the velvet of a curtain. Uh, it isn't. It's a filthy title. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's different than that. And it's so funny when it actually is explained like seven-eighths of the way through. <laughs> yeah. um, and yeah. it's actually like the the like most buttoned-up person explains it. <laughs> and we're going to let you all figure that out by reading it. Because <laughs> we're talking about Sarah Waters' is, is, uh, tipping the velvet, mm-hmm. um, which you brought to us. Uh, what what made you decide to, to uh, suggest this one? Um, it's the most recent book that I had reread because I was reading it, um, I think, like, right around the time of the inauguration. I was like, oh, I need to read something that is going to like have a happy ending. I'd read it like a couple times. Uh, I read it when it first came out in like around 2000 or 2001. And then I read it a couple times over the years. And then I was like, oh, I just need to read something that um, will be joyful and where like nobody dies and <laughs> like bad happens. And I mean, there's like, you know, bad things happen, but like ultimately everybody makes it out. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, nobody dies in this book. Yeah. I just kind of, I didn't even it's realize a lesbian that. romance where nobody dies. It's kind <laughs> of really rare. So I was, I was excited to reread it. And, oh. um, and that was the book that I happened to be reading. It was closest to me when you guys had suggested to think of a book to bring. bring it, it was, and it's, it is pure escapism. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what I was thinking while I was reading. I, I mean, I listened to it actually, mm-hmm. and I was, and it's a fantastic um, narrator, Juanita McMahon. Um, she does an incredible job. But as soon as I would put that on, I'd be like, I'd be there. I'd be like yeah. smelling oysters and, you know, uh, in Whitstable, and then yeah. and then further along. Um, this is a. I mean, it's it's a. I, when is it set exactly? I, it's the, the uh, late eighteen eighties. Eighteen eighties, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in in London uh, and and surrounding areas a little bit, um, but mostly in London about uh, this girl uh, who is coming of age and uh, leaves her family to become a customer of a um, of a cross dressing um, dance hall star, a masher, <laughs> just just like one of those great 
awful Britishisms of right. like, oh, <laughs> that's the word you went with? Yeah. Well, and then later on, she starts saying like, I'm her uncle. And it's like, not uncle. <laughs> not an uncle I've ever heard of. Uh, yeah. I mean, basically, this book is... Um, Sexy Dickens. It's like a yeah. sexy Dickens. It's a sexy Kins novel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's like three distinct movements mm-hmm. uh, of the first first person is Kitty, who like brings her out, and, is sh- and she's like a a star on, on her own, and that's how she gets like enamored with her. And then you know everybody's dream, it, you know, is to get invited backstage and then fall in love with the person. Truly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of wish fulfillment in this novel, which is also was why I was reading it at the time that I decided to start reading it. So. <laughs> uh, and then the and then the the second movement, which is the most body, mm-hmm. uh, where she, it's like straight up out of the Marquis de Sade. Yeah, yeah. yes. Uh, and it's uh, and it she sort of gets taken in by a um, but in into like a BDSM relationship. Uh, with by, a rich lady yeah a rich That's lady yes. which is very important like yeah. there's like ladies and girls mm-hmm. which are very different things in this book mm-hmm. you cannot interchange those terms mm-hmm. um la diana i uh is that character mm-hmm. and then she get and then the third movement is with the is in the social in the burgeoning socialist movement yeah which felt so again like you can't not think of the current political moment like mm-hmm. i was just like yeah. oh they're at a bernie sanders rally Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> like like her speech i'm just like i think i think he stole some of this <laughs> um i don't know i was i was completely and utterly uh taken taken away by this book what about i mean what oh about me you, too i i had first tangentially encountered Sarah Waters actually through the tournament of books a couple years ago. The paying guests. Yeah. Was her a, most was recent. It. And it was the one book where I was like, I'm going to get to this at some point. And nobody could quite sell me on it. Yeah. So it was like, it was the one of the few books I didn't read that year on the bracket. Uh, and so I was so excited to pick this up and I di- I just fell into it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's escapism in a way that I don't, I actually don't think any other book I've read this year has really made me feel that just like pure, the outside world is gone. Even when the political stuff comes in, it was still like, ah, but I'm not, it's not 2016, it's not, (laughs) it's not 2016, it's 2017, but yeah. We talk about wanting to reread books a lot on this show and then almost never do end up getting <laughs> yeah. able to reread it. I mean, like, it seems to me like a pretty big undertaking to reread. Like, what is, what is it specifically that makes you come back again and again to this? Is it just the escapism or is there is it those big ideas? Like, which of um, the, I think it's yeah. probably both. I mean, I, I really admire her plotting. Sarah Waters and all of her books is a master at plotting books and she her her later books are more obviously like mysteries or things that necessarily need like a a a pretty heavy plot um but this one uh I admire its plotting and I admire I can see she's she was she was um training as a historian or I think she was a historian for a long time so I can see the instinct that of what happens when you research stuff where you, you are making the connection between something you're researching the past with present day things that are going on and you want to be able to talk about it with somebody. 
Um, and I really admire her for figuring out a way how to do that. Um, and I think what's really kind of like an in-joke or a wink of that book is that so many of the relationships that the main character is going through are like archetypal relationships that like lesbians go through um but it's like 1887 and so she's like she's like meeting you know the like rich woman who's been out for a long time and is like totally jaded and like she breaks her heart or or whatever all these sorts of things that are kind of like part of like pulpy romance and then also also part of people's lives as they go through that kind of weird way that um uh uh like stereotypes can sometimes really ring true in people's life histories um so I really liked it for that and I also liked the really just kind of obvious deep research that went into making this world um that doesn't feel like it feels very light uh like I don't ever feel hit over the head by any of this research but like there's a part where um uh the main character is like talking to this servant girl who uh who was taken to like a a youth I don't know, reformatory because she got caught um, in a relationship with another servant girl. And I'm re and when I read that, I'm like, Oh, this is totally probably just taken from somebody's like oral history. (laughs) Like some (laughs) that's like in some, you know, vault somewhere in, in wherever in, in middle England or something. But, uh, but Sarah Waters is such a talented writer that it, it, it rings true in the novel and you're, you're totally taken and you're never kind of taken out of the moment to, to feel like you're being kind of hit over the head with any sort of piece of history, I guess. It does that thing that so many um, historical novels can't quite pull off of, of being able to stand next to novels that were written during that time period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I think about Dickens and the novels that he was right, like hard times. One of my favorite Dickens novels that's like super fiery and he start he's on the side of the workers and the, the back third of this book you could put it next to chapters by Dickens and it would feel contemporary mm-hmm. in a way that it like, it doesn't feel stodgy. It just, it feels so st- like steeped in the brine and the soot and the smoke. I just loved that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I felt like you, um, one thing that waters is particularly good at, uh, for me was just, uh, evoking smell. Yeah. Mm. She, she never forgets to like tell you what, the scene or or the room smells like Mm -hmm. which is like which is great to me and it's something that i never even realized that i miss in other books Mm -hmm. but when she's doing it she's doing it so well it's funny that you bring up the paying guests though um if i had read this first before i had read the paying guests I would have been very disappointed if I were a Sarah Waters fan of reading The Painting Guests because it feels very much like trod boards for her mm-hmm. uh, that Painting Guests does. But when you read this, it's it just seems like so much more lively. And I think that just partially might be because it's she goes so much further in the lesbian relationships yeah. in this. While in The, in, uh, the Painting Guests, it's much more, you know, just this that first like it has to be a secret and we can't have any any part of it out like it's it's that for 600 pages mm-hmm. rather than moving quickly into a bdsm relationship <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then right back out um and like we i mean we haven't even talked about the part where she's acting as a dressing as a boy mm-hmm. and and being what she calls 
is sort of cutely a renter. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she's basically just being a prostitute uh, as a man to gay men mm-hmm. only, which is, I don't know. That was, that was a very bizarre sequence of the book. Yeah. Um, but it makes so much emotional sense for the character. You're like, oh yeah, totally. That makes sense for this to happen. And I, I also admire it as one of those things that um, I think a less a, a writer who is less sure of herself would probably leave out or be like, this is, mm-hmm. I can't make this believable or like, this or is too I weird. Even, yeah. I shouldn't or even like, touch, I shouldn't even strange. touch this. Yeah. It's too strange. Or like, it's going to offend people or whatever. Um, and Waters just kind of goes for it and you're just like, oh, okay, I guess this is happening for 50 <laughs> pages. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and she, she's just always looking to fit in too. I mean, like it's like an old story. I mm-hmm. mean, that's, it's yeah. like the oldest story. Like where, where are my people? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and she keeps thinking she's found it and she hasn't. Um, and even, even at the end, I, I feel like she's still, she's still searching a little bit. I mean, like she's, She's only trying on the socialist yeah. thing. Yeah, that's what I found really poignant about the end. And I think reading it, reading that now at this age, when I, when I read it, probably when it first came out like 15 years ago, I was probably like 18 or 19. And it it didn't occur to me. And then when I was reading it this time, like at the end, she's making that uh, compromise that I think a lot of people end up making by the time you settle down with whoever you settle down with, which is like, good enough I guess <laughs> like, like, like this isn't my first love this isn't like true love this isn't like the person who like I'm gonna have mad crazy SMs like this is just like this is good enough and there's always gonna be like a slight misfit here but like this is the person who appreciates me so this is where I am and mm-hmm. and I also appreciate the novel for growing up with the character in that way mm-hmm. emotionally totally. by the by the end of it so yeah through the three sequences um kind of like a three-act play mm-hmm. and it reminded me uh a little bit of alexander cheese the queen of the night and the oh, way yeah, that, like, yeah. there are these these clear movements but you're really you're right it really does even like the prose grows to a kind of maturity by the end of the novel where at the beginning you do get swept up in like the giddy rush of, mm-hmm. of getting called backstage and also just like, what am I going to do with my life? I was waiting for her to break into like a Disney-esque song <laughs> right, at some point. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I am curious um, about, I mean, I was reading that there is an adaptation, uh, an adaptation of yeah, miniseries. Yeah, there's a TV movie, yeah. TV miniseries of it. Have you, did, have you seen it? I've seen it. Yeah. It's not that great. It's uh. not. But yeah, it's interesting that you bring up Queen of the Night because I think that book is is similar in structure to this one in, as well and that it is it's it's writing to that time period i should say alex chi was my professor at um at uh wesleyan when i was an undergrad and he cool. taught cool. my only the only undergrad writing class that i took he taught um and has been become a really good friend um but i what i really admire about his book is that um it is a novel that exists in like in another kind of wish fulfillment state for the heroine where like at, at each moment there's like somebody magically appears with like X to happen or X to kind of like push, push her forward. Um, and uh, the, a similar thing is going on in this book. And I actually think that's really kind of interesting to write about, especially now where like that's not necessarily in fashion in the way that people think about literary fiction, but is actually, I think, 
can can force you to write about more interesting things when you kind of do set up these um, like magical coincidences for for a main character to kind of get what they want at the moment what they want it and then you're forced to kind of write them through that and write them to another kind of more interesting place yeah and it and i mean i kind of i i i am a defender of the magical coincidence uh, in novels because <laughs> i feel like they happen in life and people either don't realize that that was a magical coincidence mm-hmm. that happened to them or it's just their life so it's just like yeah they had like 20 years before that and 30 years after. Mm-hmm. So they don't think about the fact that there was this one magical coincidence that set them down this like pretty wild path. Yeah. Um, and, and so people, people uh, forget that life is full of bizarre, weird coincidences that, For sure, yeah. that have caused your change in, in your decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the reason that so, I so often don't like that in novels is that it is so often handled like magical coincidence. Right, right, right. And you're right. In this book, it is like this thing happens. So now let's deal with it. It's like, it's the post happily ever after thing Mm -hmm. of like, great, you got what you wanted. Yeah. Now what? Yeah. Yeah. Like this, this book has a really weird interlude that I admire her for when, um, uh, so she's the main character has been working as a renter and she gets picked up off the street by this rich lady, Diana. And, Diana is like, come stay at my house and we'll just fuck all the time and you don't have to do any work or do anything. And she's like, great. And then, <laughs> and then there's like a, a five page scene where she has to go back and tell her friends, not tell her friends where she's going, but basically like leave them and they're never going to see her again. And, and she has to like work through the guilt and the real callousness and cruelty of doing that to this this friendship group that she had where she actually kind of had friends. And that's a really interesting choice to do. I mean, it doesn't just like fade to black and then you're like, you know, in the fuck palace or whatever. Like she has to like go and like, fi- sorry, am I allowed to say that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, she's like, she's, she has to go and actually think about like what it means to make those choices. So the, this book does that. I think um, Queen of the Night does that as well, which is a really kind of interesting thing to it it forces you i think it forces you as a writer to work a little bit harder um because it's easier in some ways to write about a character that's thwarted um because all of the drama is very apparent you know you want something you don't get it but um it's much harder to make the drama apparent when when a character is given seemingly what they wish for in kind of the moment yeah Yeah. All right. Should we talk about some other things? Sure. Should we talk about recommendations? Yeah, why not? Okay. We read some pretty cool books. We recommend you take a look. Yeah. You want to start us off, Drew? Sure. Um, I read... Uh, this very tiny, this little novella out from um, Tor.com Publishing. Uh, it's called The Devil in America by mm-hmm. uh, Kai Ashante Wilson. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is this great magical realism, like American fable um, where a young girl, um, I'm trying not to give anything, a young girl does something wrong and encounters the devil uh, makes a deal with the devil and she doesn't really know any better. And 
something bad is going to happen. And the, the novella is maybe 60 pages. Um, and the way that Wilson just builds this tension and at the very end snaps it shut and is like, this is the best commentary you're going to read on the racial problems of America this year. Mm-hmm. It just, like it just, it hits and you're like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I really loved it. I, yeah. I just admired what he was able to do in such a short period of time. It's so old. I mean, it's almost old fashioned taking, using science fiction or yeah, uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to tackle a problem like that. Cool. Mm-hmm. Caitlin, how about you? Uh, I'm reading this book of essays called We Are Never Meeting in Real Life by Samantha Irby. <laughs> Good time. Um, and she has a she has a blog called Bitches Gotta Eat that she's had for a while. <laughs> um, she's a really fantastic, really really funny writer. Um, and so she had a she had a book of essays come out a few years ago called Meaty um, that are also really funny that um, everyone should go get. Uh, and these are are continual personal essays about her life, about growing up, and they're a little bit. Um, more they're a little bit they're still really funny but they're a little bit sadder than uh, i think some of the meaty essays and uh it's great i recommend it nice cool do you want to also oh yeah i I also (laughs) read books um i am i'm gonna recommend a tournament book that if you didn't get to it i understand when sometimes like the big book that everyone's talking about can feel a little bit like homework or or because like you know it's going to be difficult or in some way like challenging to get through um and i definitely felt like this a little bit before i picked it up yeah uh jesse's home going mm-hmm. um but oh my god i tore through it i had to read it like i i every minute i wanted to be reading it mm-hmm. um and it's it's just not at all what i was expecting somehow um i had a real bad experience reading things fall apart by shinwa shebe mm-hmm. in 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 high school i didn't mm-hmm didn't love reading that and didn't love the discussion that we had afterwards. Um, and I, and I saw that this book was being compared to it and I just, this book brings that, the, the region alive in a way that I just wished I had for, and maybe I need to return to things fall apart now. Um, mm-hmm. but gosh, home going is a stone cold stunner mm-hmm. and everybody should read it. Nice. Yeah. Well, all right, we did it, Caitlin. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me for yeah. joining us yeah. in the damn library. We really appreciate it, thank and thanks you. for Charlie Freeman too. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Of course. Well, uh, we will be back next week. Next week with the uh, the wrap up with the wrap up of the tournament with uh, with Nosley and maybe some other fun guests. We'll see. Yeah, we'll tell you, or we won't. Yeah, we we play it fast and loose with what we tell you guys <laughs> um uh, you know go to our website so many and check out all of our recipes for drinks and the damn bar and uh and check out uh drew's show notes and also pick up the so many damn books t-shirt which is almost gone by yeah, the time you're is, listening to this by the time you listen to this that that'll be the end you won't be able to buy the shirt ever again and uh and you'll be really sad and wish and wish and ask <laughs> for us and we'll say no you can't and there will be no wish fulfillment no mm-hmm. no this is not a sarah waters novel <laughs> <laughs> this is real life <laughs> okay bye okay bye <laughs>